Hello and welcome back to Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we have Dr. Chris Norton on. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, very good. Thanks. How are you? Good, good. So you're an Egyptologist. Do you want to tell everyone a bit about what that actually is? <laughs> yes. Um, so an Egyptologist uh, is somebody who studies uh, Egypt and uh, specifically, um, or, although it's not implicit in the name, uh, it's the study of ancient Egypt, um, usually defined as being down to the time of the Arab conquest. So we're talking about from um, sort of prehistoric Neolithic uh, Egypt down to um, roughly the 6th century, 6th, 7th century AD. Wow. Um, so I am somebody who uh, studied hieroglyphs, the ancient Egyptian language. I can read hieroglyphs. Um, I studied pyramids, mummies, Tutankhamun, all of those things that people will have heard of, I hope. I'm, I'm a bit of a history buff, so um, it, that's a, a very, very cool job to me. Uh, yeah it's yeah it's it's fun i mean i i studied ancient history and archaeology at, at university and uh i wanted to do that um having watched tv documentaries and maybe read a book or two in in my teens and um i had yeah, i had not much much ambition beyond uh wanting to get a degree and to do it in the most uh, interesting least boring way that I could um and so so I suppose that's a long way of saying yeah I, I I I was interested in in ancient Egypt specifically um and archaeology and ancient history more more generally uh as a kid and um and I still am even even now I'm grown up I, I guess um Egyptology history as a field um I guess the general public don't really know of many historians that specialize in say, I don't know, ancient Rome or ancient Greece, whereas Egyptology is a real um, known sort of part of history. Do you yeah. think that's because we have such a good record of all the kings that have been throughout the history and you can date things to, to know, you, you can know when they built the pyramids, for example? Yeah, it's difficult to put your finger on that, actually. And um, I, I should maybe say as well that... Um, I've, I've been doing Egyptology for about 20 years professionally and I'm now freelance. I, I, um, I make my living from writing a bit of TV and media work, uh, public speaking, tours to Egypt, that kind of thing. Um, and it's difficult to think of another or too many other ancient cultures, at least um, in, in which there's, uh, enough opportunities to make a living like that mm. um, I think that's partly to do as you say with a kind of a, abundance of evidence and you know there, there's there's enough for us to know enough kinds of evidence of different kinds so you know monumental you can go and see spectacular remains of uh, of ancient Egyptian civilization there's textual evidence so we've you know we've got quite long texts of various kinds everything from sort of poetry to historical accounts for people to get their teeth into and and as a result of all of this we do know um although there are enormous gaps and there's an awful lot that we don't know um there's enough for us to be able to string together quite a nice narrative of the history of egypt and then for for some reason um and i i'm never really sure that i can quite put my finger on this and i do get asked a lot you know why is ancient egypt so popular mm. uh, with people but but that but, but it's true it is um for, for one reason or another and and so i think that that sort of contributes to to egypt being visible in museums being visible on on tv in 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 the bookshelves um and and in terms of there being people like me out there who who do this kind of thing I, I was going to say, do you think it stems back from when we were, uh, you know, going to all these different countries, a hundred, maybe even 150 different years ago, um, and we were bringing back, you know, obelisks and artifacts? Mm. Do you think it's just because it's in the the national psyche that, you know, when you think history, you automatically go to Egypt? Uh, yes, I th I'm sure you're right about that, um, and that's a very relevant question to ask, and a very sort of relevant way of of thinking about it um egypt is one of a series of sort of um 
old world kind of colonialist parts of the world in you know which were visited by countries like britain france mm. germany in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, for lots of other reasons political territorial military etc um, and um, and and those countries just happen to be very rich archaeologically as well um, countries in sort of north africa middle east mediterranean um, and so, so yes, it is. It is certainly uh, partly to do with that that we have, as you rightly point out, you know, lot, lots of objects in museums, even monuments, which in some cases are in public spaces, like Cleopatra's Needle on the Thames, or uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and and yeah, that, I mean, that's that is a result of more more recent history, and and this country, the UK's. Uh, presence and involvement in uh, in Egypt and and other countries in in the region. Th this is something that we we have to think very critically about these days, and yeah. you know, and um, about um, you know all of the ways in, in which what we know about the ancient past in those those places has come about because of a slightly dubious uh, <laughs> you know series of happenings in in our own country's history. Yeah. I think the other thing is, uh, thinking back of it, I think the Egyptians were probably the oldest civilization I ever learned at school outside of actually studying history uh, by myself. And also, I suppose, it's biblical ties uh, makes it quite a prominent yes. um, era for for most people. Yeah, I think you're yeah, absolutely right. Um, yes. Um... Egypt tends to be, I'm sure you've noticed this in sort of general history books, um, on the history of whatever it is, you know, transport, art, sculpture, the economy, you know, it, anybody who's ever trying to sort of tell the history of that thing globally, it tends to be, you know, the, fir the first thing that gets said is, well, in ancient Egypt, um, <laughs> you know, and, and actually Egyptians, it is true that the Egyptian society became very sophisticated and complex at a very early point in time. Um, there are societies in Mesopotamia which were maybe as sophisticated um, and and complex that arose around the same time, um, but but none of them perhaps were quite as enduring as ancient Egypt. I think I think that's the other thing is um, the other thing to remember is that Egypt. Uh, in in terms of its the way the way we sort of define it and the way we recognize it so in terms of um, ar architectural um, features like pyramids and in terms of language the hieroglyphic script um, the way that that um, human beings and, and gods and goddesses are depicted in art so you know if you think of the typical sort of walk like an Egyptian um, scene from Egyptian art all, all of that is consistent with 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 changes but it's more or less consistent for almost 3,000 years which you know it, it is is quite staggering in itself but it also means that that culture lasted longer than than almost any other uh, ancient culture so it had a long time you know to kind of put down roots and right. and you're right the fact that it's in the bible as well is is very is very important for um for our recognition of it now why do you think it was able to survive for three thousand years obviously that you know uh, they had the early middle and late kingdoms or however you refer to them now um <clears throat> but how did a civilization in the ancient times last for three thousand years that's a great question uh, i mean um I've not done the comparisons, but I mean, obviously, you know, ancient Egyptian civilization, you know, lasted as long as it did with with all of these um, with all of these spectacular achievements, monumental building and and such like, for much longer than our own, you know, supposedly great and uh, sophisticated civilization. You know, we haven't we haven't hit that three thousand year point yet. Um, so you know we pr we probably need to wait a few thousand years before we <laughs> start to understand um why why in some places uh, societies are able to endure i mean egypt is geographically it's very well placed um in that the the territory to the east and west of it is is uninhabitable 
the territory to the north is is the ocean uh the mediterranean uh and to the south actually the the nile valley becomes much less habitable it's much less suitable for settlement permanent settlement um it's also very rich um agriculturally in particular so egypt never had any trouble feeding itself um so you know it's it's well defended from external threats uh it's wealthy um just what it is that that meant that it was able to uh cultivate sophisticated systems of writing that kind of thing um as early as it did what quite you know what why it is that those things developed in the Nile Valley we're we're still sort of trying to understand um but but I mean yeah you know let's wait and see I mean if um if if our modern western society outlasts Egypt then then we can look for reasons why but <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't <laughs> yeah very true um do you have a favorite sort of time period or pharaoh um within ancient Egypt uh well I did my um doctoral research on the period of the Egyptian 25th dynasty um, which occurred over a period of just short of a century between roughly 750 BC and 650. Um, what interests me about that is that it was a time when Egypt was taken over by uh, a group of relatively little-known kings from another kingdom called Kush to the south of Egypt in what is now Sudan. Um, and that society had adopted... Uh, a lot of Egyptian customs uh, and took advantage of a weakened Egypt to take it over. So I guess I've got a sort of soft spot for that, but it, it thanks to mostly thanks to um, uh, the, the, the public sort of fascination with Tutankhamun and actually the period that came immediately before Tutankhamun's reign um, under the Pharaoh Akhenaten, um, I've, I've ended up doing a lot of work on on that time and um, that's become a bit of a favourite of mine as well. It's, it's sort of shunned by a lot of Egyptologists because, precisely because it's so popular and so well known in the public. And I think a lot mm. of a lot of specialists and academics prefer to shy away from things that are popular. You know, it's that kind of thing where um you know you want to you want to do something slightly more obscure you know maybe maybe because it, it there's more scope for doing something new mm. um, and i was a bit like that too for a while i was you know it was kind of a bit like oh well you know i'm a specialist actually so i'm not really interested <laughs> in king tut but um but i like i say i mean it, it, it television work in particular has drawn me to 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 get in, interested and involved in that um and it really is an incredible time so when people ask me if you if you if you'd ask me um if i could go back to a particular point um i would absolutely love to know uh what happened to the burial of akhenaten um when that happened um who was responsible uh what happened to akhenaten's um principal wife nefertiti because th these are all things which again going back to that idea of a sort of abundance of evidence these are things that because there's lots of evidence we kind of feel as though we should know really well like we should almost know day by day what was happening mm. um but actually that's not the nature of archaeological and you know evidence for the ancient world which there's still these huge gaps so we kind of feel like we're we're really close to knowing and we can tell a good story, but there's still enough gaps for it to be really tantalizing for us to not exactly be able to say what happened. So, so if I could, if I could go back to a particular place in time, it would be the Valley of the Kings towards the end of King Tut's reign, I think. Wow. So we had uh, an archaeologist on recently, actually, uh -huh. uh, and she was talking about um, how they're using satellites to image the desert, um, to yes. look for pyramids and tombs and what, what are we currently looking for in Egypt or what are, you know, Egyptologists like yourselves really looking for? That's a good question. I mean, um, there are dozens and dozens of archaeological teams working in Egypt every year. Um, and it, each of them has, has, you know, their own reason for, for being wherever, wherever it is they are. Um, they're not necessarily uh, searching for, 
searching for particular things it's not it's not necessarily like a sort of treasure hunt where you go grubbing around with, with a particular thing in mind and you know hoping you might find it and it's not there it's not there but oh you know to it's here it is <laughs> um a lot of the time it's it's more to do with adding slowly 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 gradually to the to the data set about a particular thing um having said that um the satellite uh, imagery sort of approach is I'd say in Egypt it's one of <clears throat> a series of remote sensing techniques which can be used to look at Egypt in a, in a kind of zoomed out way if you like so um, in the past because Egypt is so abundant in in archaeological material um, if you if you were in the right place, so if you were in, for example, a very rich cemetery site like uh, Saqqara or Giza or um, the cemeteries around the Valley of the Kings, that kind of general area, mm. it's almost the case that if you stick a spade in the ground, you'll find something. Wow. Um, so so there was a time um, in the past where, you know, if you just wanted to kind of find pretty things, that was the thing to do. Um, these days, as I say, we're sort of taking a more zoomed out approach. So there's still plenty of that sort of material to 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 see. But if you begin to look at Egypt on a kind of um, regional level, you can begin to see things like settlement patterns and the way that political geography in Egypt changed over time. So the capital city, for example, shifted um, for, for most of the time. It was at the boundary between um the nile delta and the nile valley um but it but it was in different places at different times and that might have been to do with w w which which particular part of the country was strategically most um useful or it mm -hmm. might have been to do with environmental change so something we've only just begun to see in the last few years is that the river moved the river nile moved wow um it can move tens hundreds of meters from east to west and that's dramatically affected um the obviously that you know settlement formation settlement patterns mm -hmm. in that um you know you you might you might get a situation where on one bank of the river the river's moving away which is freeing up land uh to put it sort of in, crudely kind of almost land in front of your front garden which means that you can build a new house which is great <laughs> so that you know the town or the village might begin to expand on that side whereas on the other side of the river the river is moving towards you and it's beginning to, beginning to sort of lap up against your house and in through your front door which means that you've got to either you know knock down your house and build it again 10 meters away or more likely you you move somewhere else altogether and we can begin to see now that actually uh probably the the most sort of uh headline grabbing example of of how we now understand um things to have developed is that the the temples of karnak which are one of the most spectacular sets of monuments still standing in egypt were probably originally built on an island very deliberately because islands have a kind of cosmological significance for the ancient egyptians they believe that all life sprang forth in primordial times from an island so this is where they built the temples and that's not an island anymore because the channel that ran around the eastern side of that of that temple has completely dried up and the temple's now firmly on the eastern bank of the river. Okay. Um, but the more we can begin to see these things, the more we can begin to answer questions like um, where exactly Memphis was, because we're still not quite sure where it was in the earliest time. But it may well be, in fact, that the reason we don't have the remains of that ancient city from the earliest period is because the river has moved and swallowed it up or, you know, it's meant that it's not quite uh, in the place we were expecting it to be in relation to the river. If that, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, it, so, it goes, it goes back to that being 3000 years of society. And over that time, like you say, geography literally changed and, and it moved cities. Yeah, that's right. Man. Well, I mean, we can actually see it. it what, I mean, what's, there's a, a, a small number of um, uh, archaeologists who uh, also have a kind of specialism in environmental science or geology who are leading this research. And they're able to show that, that this kind of thing is also happening, of course, still today, to a lesser extent, maybe, because the damming of the River Nile now means that the, the river is much is much more controlled than it used to be mm. um, in ancient times but still they can show that these uh, river channels and islands 
can form in the space of decades. So you're absolutely right. When you're talking about a civilization which endured for 3,000 years, of course, you know, you'd have an awful lot of that kind of change. That's, um, yeah, and, you know, the really impact that that has on the mentality of the Egyptians as well is really interesting. You know, um, they, they worshipped the river as a god. They sort of had it. Had, they, there was the idea of the, the river being embodied as a god uh, who they called happy. Um, and of course, if, if you know, if, if uh, one day the river doesn't flood, it doesn't it doesn't deposit water on your land and your, your crops don't grow. Then, of course, you know. Yeah, I suppose the uh, Nile is all their source of life there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it could be vengeful, you know, if it decides to start eating up your house as well. You know, you'd be wondering what you were doing wrong or what you needed to do yeah. to, to make things different. Um, could you talk us through uh, your progress to education? Uh, yeah, so... Um, I went, as I mentioned, I went to uh, university to study ancient history and archaeology. Um, I, I'd done history and classics at school. Uh, I'd, and those were really the things that interested me, you know, m- more than anything else. I mean, like everybody else at school, I wanted to play football and I wanted to play the guitar and, um, and be, a, be a rock star or a footballer <laughs> or something like that. But, um, in terms of my studies, it was kind of history and that sort of thing that interested me the most. And I And I do remember... I have a very clear memory of asking my history teacher, kind of jokingly, we had a good uh, relationship when I was in, uh, when I was in the sixth form, why we don't do more ancient things. Um, and as I, as I mentioned, I was doing a classics A level as well. So I was getting interested, not just in the text that we were reading for the exams, but in the history behind that and, you know, ancient Greece and that sort of thing. And I think things like Greek mythology, as well as the ancient Egyptians are, you know, things that are generally popular with, uh, with people at that sort of age. So when I had the opportunity to go and do this at university um, with uh, all the support of my family, um, I, I went off to do this and um, I wasn't a very academic student really. I, I, I went to a good school and I was able to go to university, didn't have a gap year or anything like that, but I wasn't particularly expecting to do well. I was just hoping to get through, you know, and get a degree <laughs> at the end of it because that's what you were supposed to do. Um, but I got there and found that I absolutely loved it. And um, I'd, I'd kind of found my, I'd found my place. So I've got very fond memories of studying, of course, uh, ancient Egypt, but, but also everything from um, forensic archaeology. We did a bit, that was a very popular course, um, medieval cathedrals. I did a bit of um norse mythology i even did a bit of old icelandic language at one point that was pretty tough wow that's cool um yeah so uh, you know i was just completely immersed in in the ancient world in in archaeology and i I went to study in birmingham which is which is quite a rich area for history and heritage um but it was egypt that really grabbed me and i i just decided that i would I, i wanted to keep going so i with support of my tutors uh, they encouraged me to do a master's degree. So I did, an, I did a research master's, an MPhil, by this time specialising in, in Egyptology. Um, by, by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I was taking all the Egyptology options I could. So that meant um, a bit of archaeology, art history, um, religion and the language as well, um, which is which is by far and away the hardest thing i i had to do it at uh, university and an ancient language is it's just very hard mm. um i struggle with english <laughs> yeah right yeah um yeah there's just loads of grammar to it you you know you i think um i certainly went into old icelandic thinking oh great it's going to be ruins you know it's all going to be mm. amazing it's all going to be about thor and i'm going to read all about those things and it will be really a great party trick to be able to read about runes and actually it wasn't it was um there was no ancient script to it. It was all just the language and it was very grammar heavy. And Egyptian is just like that as well. You do need to know the script. But um, that's one of the only reasons I didn't actually study classics at universities because of um, language. having to learn a language with it. Yeah. It, yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't lie. It's not easy. And when you when you sit down, I wouldn't want to put anybody off because, uh, you know, because I'm still enjoying it and really, you know, lo- loving the whole thing 20 years later, 20 more plus years later. But um when you sit down in the first sort of few lessons and your tutor's saying, right, okay, so today suffix pronouns, and you think, what? <laughs> you know, um, and you get into past participles and um, relative forms and 
all this sort of stuff and yeah i mean it, it is great you know to be to be able to read text after a while but um you've got to battle through the grammar if, and if you if you don't know that and a lot of us a lot of us uh, who are english speakers don't know our grammar very well um it's it's not easy but i um so i did my i did a research masters and um my intention was to go was to carry on and do a phd pretty much straight away just on the on the you know principle that you know I was going to sort of do whatever was next in front of me and that was the logical next step but a tutor actually encouraged me not to um, on the basis that I would have been in my mid-20s at the oldest um, if I if I went just straight on and carried on doing all the studying I could and that I would so I'd, I'd be pretty young for somebody with a PhD but I'd have no experience of life or uh, kind of work experience in the field and I wouldn't know anybody either um, I'd only know my tutors in Birmingham there were no jobs in Birmingham um, so this tutor said look go away take a year away try and get yourself uh, try and get your, some experience on your CV so go and do for Egyptology the kinds of things you might want to do are to get some experience working in a museum work with some objects try and get yourself some field work experience go and go and work for a digger in Egypt if you can um try and maybe do some teaching doesn't have to be Egyptology teaching but you know try and get some experience of, of teaching and you know and, and and do as many of those things that are Egyptology without formal study as you can so I I took this on board um applied to all the museums and field projects that I could um and at the same time I applied for every job in Egyptology that came up in the country for the experience of filling out application forms and I thought if I got an interview, that would be amazing because I could use the experience as well. That would be good. Um, and to my astonishment, I got two rejections just flat out. Um, one uh, from a very reputable institution. I won't mention. Um, starts <laughs> with British and ends with museum. Uh, <laughs> I, which didn't even acknowledge uh, applications. My tutor was very um, unhappy about this. I can remember, remember him saying something like... Um, they can't even afford a price of a stamp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Anyway, so I didn't That's, get the that, job. That was very Sean Connery from um, Indiana <laughs> Jones. <laughs> wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. That's not, that's not <laughs> his story. Um, uh, and then I got, a, I got another rejection from the University of Manchester. And, uh, and then a job, a very sort of junior administration position came up at the Egypt Exploration Society. So I went for that because, you know, as I say, I was going for everything. I got an interview, which I thought was amazing. I was very excited, um, did lots of prep. But again, I have no expectation of getting the job at this point. Uh, I went for the interview and I got the job. Um, to my astonishment, so this sort of ruined all my plans to, to take a year out, get some experience and then go back to university. Um, but it turned out, of course, to be uh, absolutely brilliant for me because it was a job it was very badly paid well no it was it wasn't very well paid I shouldn't be mean um and I just I was happy as Larry I was in my early 20s I was 22 when I got the job I had a job in they, the offices were in Bloomsbury um so I had a full-time salary I was working with people coming coming in through the door every day who'd written articles and books and things that I knew um that I'd read so I was meeting all these people um just, I mean, I was doing things like licking stamps and putting them on envelopes and doing photocopying and reshelving library books and things. But, um, but meanwhile, I was picking up contacts and mm. uh, and really rounding out my general knowledge. I was in charge of the library, so people would come in and say, you know, have you got anything on Tuthmosis the Fourth or something? And I wouldn't know anything about Tuthmosis the Fourth, but you know, by the time I'd helped them, I did uh, know something about Tuthmosis the Fourth. Um, and and from there. I, I just, um, I, you know, I, 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 I just sort of took every opportunity that came along and um, I stayed there for nearly 16 years in the end. So wow. it turned out to be great advice. So there was a very long answer to your question about education, but um, <laughs> that's uh, good. Yeah, Lots it was, of detail. It, it was a tutor at university that set me on that path and it, that was a really pivotal moment for me. And you, uh, you did go back to do your PhD in the end, did you? I did. Yeah, I did. So, so um I had uh, in that in that period when I was applying for um, everything, um, I 
managed to get myself some fieldwork experience. Um, it was the only thing that came off of all this, all this apart from the, the job at the ES, it was the only bit of work experience I applied for that I got. So I spent um, an incredibly hot um, season in Abydos in May 2001. And um, I was already working at the ES by the time that came round. Uh, and they they generously allowed me to to go off and do this because you know they were sort of supporting my Egyptological career, um, and they obviously had somebody else to lick stamps for a month, um, <laughs> and um, and and I didn't I decided I didn't want to go back on this project uh, because I found it very tough to be honest. It was it was really really hot. Um, I mean that sounds like a stupid thing to say for somebody who's going to Egypt to spend a month in the <laughs> desert, but it was unusually hot, um, sort of 50 degrees. Um, and Jesus. It, was, it was very uncomfortable and I found it very difficult to sleep. And that meant it was very difficult for me to stay awake <laughs> during the day. <laughs> so, um, and I was just drawing pottery, you know, I was given the sort of very junior most job as a volunteer on this project. Um, and I just didn't enjoy it very much. And I didn't really feel like I'd made a very good impression. So I, uh, I decided I probably wasn't going to go back. But a colleague at the ES said, so what are you going to do now? Um, I said, well, you know, I don't know. And she said, well, where would you like to work? And I said, well, I mean, you know, thinking you can't just you can't just go and work for whichever project you want. But I said, um, I said, what, you know, I mean, if I if I could go anywhere and go and work with the Italian mission to this 25th dynasty tomb in Luxor that I knew was was going and she basically said right I'll go and sort it out for you so she did um so I I again ended up on my uh sort of dream (laughs) projects and while I was out there this completely restored all of my enthusiasm for doing Egyptology really properly and 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 doing my studies and and going back to my subject 25th dynasty and um so i came home from that project um determined to go and do a phd and i i spoke to the yes about it and said look um is there any chance that i could do this phd and keep my job so you know keep the job part-time do the studying part-time and um and they said yeah so i I managed to to do uh, the phd alongside my es work it took um from start to finish, it took almost eight years, uh, which... Eight years? Eight years, yeah. Because wow. that's obviously part-time, isn't it? Part-time, and then with some fairly lengthy gaps um, of more than a year in some, in, 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 on several occasions. Um, and it, but it, to be honest with you, in the grand scheme of things, I, I, I know of quite a lot of people who have taken longer than that. Mm. Um, so... And I always, and I always kind of thought to myself, you know, I'm I'm doing this in order to have a career. So the important thing is to keep my job at the ES going. Mm. Um, and if that means the PhD taking a long time, then so be it. Having said that, having it hanging over you for eight years is not something <laughs> I'd recommend. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, it all works out. What What is an actual average day for uh, an Egyptologist? I suppose you'll say there isn't one because you know you're studying hieroglyphics, you're, you're doing a bit of archaeology. You know, it, it sounds well, it sounds brilliant. I might go and do it. But what is an average day? Well, it, it, yeah, so it varies. It it will vary a lot depending on um, who you speak to. So, I mean, if I were a curator in a museum, then you know, notwithstanding. The coronavirus i would be going into the department every day and i you know i would be i would be probably working with objects some of the time i might be writing exhibition catalog entries or you know that kind of thing um uh, equally you know if i was if i was a university uh, lecturer in egyptology i'd be going into the campus and doing my research and teaching my most of my work is either writing or media uh kind of stuff so um i typically might be writing a proposal for a book i'm just in the middle of doing something like that at the moment on and off um i i've got a book coming out on the first of october so i'm just gearing up to start promoting that so i'll be giving a lecture on that on the subject of of the book on this uh, sunday coming up so i'm i'm prepping slides for a talk um i do do a lot of lectures um so i spend a lot of time certainly since the lockdown on zoom um 
Are you like a guest lecturer or are you tied to a university? No, I'm not at all. So, um, so the kind of lectures I would do are for specialist interest groups. So there's a lot of Egyptology uh, societies in, uh, in this country. So I can easily do sort of half a dozen of those uh, every year, which takes me around the country. I occasionally get to speak to similar sorts of groups overseas. Um, since I've been writing um, books, uh, I've I found that promoting books takes me to things like literary festivals, takes me into bookshops um, to do little talks and then signings and that sort of thing. Um, I, I also, I also get, you know, being on TV, doing TV work and being, you know, sort of reasonably high profile in, in the media as Egyptologists go means I, I quite often get asked to do talks on the basis of things that have been on TV. Um, but since the lockdown, actually, it's, it's uh, of course, everything's had a shift on online. So I will be doing, I have done a few talks at the invitation of specialist groups, but I've also started doing my own, just off my own bat, um, uh, making use of uh, a small following on social media. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's something that's brand new for me. And I think it's brand new for just about everybody in Egyptology at least, um, but it works really well. There's a, there's a global audience. Um, so yeah, I mean, let's wait and see. I, I, I mean, certainly in, in the lockdown, the lectures were, um, seem to be quite popular and I can reach more people online than I could. Yeah by going you know to a particular part of the uk and i think it draws more people in because it's a lot easier to listen to a lecture on your sofa than it is to go and travel up to a london university or something isn't it yeah that is it's absolutely right i mean i when when um when we when, when i first started doing these things as part of the lockdown i i really thought it was a kind of temporary stop gap um while you know while, while in-person lectures weren't possible and I just, I mean, it just seems so obvious in hindsight, but um, once I started giving these and um, the way I do them at least um, is actually following the Egypt Exploration Society's way of doing them is is, is to obviously I have my video on, but uh, nobody else has their video on, but they can post comments in the chat. And I tend to go on 10, 15 minutes before the lecture starts. And, um, uh, and, and people just, you know people just say hi you know hi here i am in wherever and my goodness me people are all over the world and uh and i've had lots of people writing to me to say you know chris i live in in rural missouri i've never been to an egyptology lecture in my life this is incredible you know suddenly i i can go to talks by all these people i see on tv or all these people who books i've read um you know this is amazing the lockdown's been been absolutely brilliant so uh so yeah it's uh, it looks like it's actually as i mean as i say with hindsight it was really obvious that this was going to be possible yeah yeah uh but it's it's the lockdowns kind of you know kick, kicked us into doing it and um, yeah, I, think I think it's so. going to be the way for the future yeah certainly uh what would be some of the personality traits that you uh you've seen yourself and probably some of your peers that you um you think are really good for your uh, your field gosh that's a good question um I mean, I think um, it—it's got to be said that there's there's no point in doing in doing this job unless you're, you know, really enthusiastic about your subject. Um, yeah, yeah. The amount of time are, you have to put into it, yeah. Yeah, there are there are far more qualified Egyptologists, even qualified up to PhD level, than there are jobs available or you know employment opportunities um so you've got to really really want to do it um and e even for those people who 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 get jobs you know there's probably a lot of you know you're probably going to have to accept that there's there's going to be a um a long wait not very many people who do get jobs get them straight out of university you know you've usually got to be doing other things for a few years you've probably got to take lots of unpaid work so yeah so it's it's got to be a passion um depending on depending on how you want to sort of apply your skills some some people are very good with reading ancient texts um so those people need to have a great kind of concentration good language skills um good visual skills good ability to read sometimes very badly written um hieroglyphic or cursive signs um 
other people work on say archaeological excavations in Egypt and those people might not read the Egyptian language at all um, but they're very practical uh, you know they they might be much better at reading as it were a landscape um, or you know much much better with recognizing objects or you know detecting the difference between an 18th dynasty shared of pottery and a 20th dynasty shared of pottery um, so and then you know if you're going to go into teaching or the or the media like like i ended up um doing i uh, I, I you know you need to be able to communicate um ultimately the kind of currency that we we use that we work with is is information you know is knowledge it's all about gathering that information and sharing it and most people who are professional egyptologists are academics um, and their work is principally in sharing um, the knowledge and the interpretations um, with with an with a with a um, with an academic audience. Um, if you're teaching, uh, so you're teaching undergraduate students, or you're teaching postgraduate students, or or um, you're teaching at say evening class kind of level, or you know doing the kind of thing I'm doing, which is trying to explain things to non-specialist audiences in public lectures, or or even on TV or in books or whatever. You've 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 got to have good communication skills. You've got to be on top of the um, the knowledge, and you but you've got to understand it in 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 such a way as to be able to make it comprehensible for the people who are listening to you and also interesting um i think that was one of the things i learned maybe while i was a student maybe not long afterwards was that um even the very most highly regarded academics sometimes are not the best communicators um and if you're boring, either way <laughs> yeah <laughs> um if you know if you're boring um then you know if and if your audience goes to sleep after a minute of your lecture then it doesn't really matter what you've got to say um mm. if you've lost them then um then you're sunk so you know i, I suppose I, I suppose that you know what i'm saying is there's there are lots of different qualities that might allow you to have a successful career in this kind of subject um but uh yeah and and there's and no one is sort of necessarily better than, than the other there are lots of different niches for people to occupy so there's space for a, a, a huge plethora of, of different personalities and types of people but you, yeah. you personally what kind of positives and opportunities have you taken out of this career i mean you've mentioned you've done tv um mm. you're, you've written a book and you're writing another one which i think your your first book is lost tombs of egypt i've actually seen that in mm. the bookshop before i'm gonna i'm gonna give that a read oh, well, um but, but what, what are your sort of the biggest positives and opportunities you're taking out of this personally well i mean like i say i um i was fascinated by ancient egypt um as a kid and i still am um i think i i you know i think understanding the way things were in the past to put it in a very sort of sim simplistic way helps us to understand ourselves and, and our own situation, our own sort of society and culture. And, um, you know, in some ways, if you, if you study a, a culture like ancient Egypt, which is a long way removed from us in time and geography, um, and in, and in lots of other ways as well, um, you know, I suppose the, the immediate things you notice about people and, and, and how things were, how life was for people is how different it is. But, but, you know, the, 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 the more you learn, the more often you can see how things actually were, were quite sort of similar. So, you know, the, the value of, of studying Egyptology is the same as the value of studying any any sort of branch of history. It's it's um, it, it gives us a perspective on on our own lives and our own situations, and I and I and I love that. Um, it's it, it to think about sort of other things though. I mean, uh, Egyptology in and the opportunities I've had and the, the way the subject has taken me has meant that I've been able to travel to Egypt an awful lot um so i'm the last time i counted i was at just slightly over 40 visits i think to egypt um which is a really incredible place it's a it's a it's a very 
different culture from ours. It's a very beautiful place. Um, I'm really sort of thankful for the opportunity to have been out there. It's a very beautiful place. Um, I I have an interest in photography. I, I you know going to Egypt um, has enabled me to indulge my sort of photographic um, side, if you like. I've also come to realize as well that um, it took me a long time to realize this, but I I I do really like writing. Mm-hmm. I like the process of writing. Um, I have things to say and I enjoy kind of crafting a sentence or an article or these days every so often a book. Um, and, and again, you know, do, doing Egyptology and having an expertise in Egyptology has given me something to say. And, and I suppose things like TV and, you know, in particular have given me a platform. Um, if, if it, you know, it wasn't for, working at the ES, I'd have never been invited to do TV. If it wasn't for TV, I'd have never been asked to do a book. Um, and I, I, I like being able to share what I know, you know, the expertise I, I have with, with an audience. Um, I, I, you know, and when I, when I mentioned teaching, I don't, I don't, I don't do teaching as such, but in some sense, all these things, TV and writing and lecturing, they're all a kind of teaching. And there's a great sort of joy and pleasure to be had in, in, in learning a thing and getting excited about that thing and then sharing it with people. And um, I, I'm particularly conscious of that in, in my work now as a freelancer, um, because although I loved my time at the ES, I eventually came to be the chief executive of the Egypt Exploration Society, the director for a few years. Um, and that was a great privilege. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I learned a huge amount about how to run a, a small business, how to run a charity in that time. But I, I was doing a lot of administration and management by the end of it. And I'd kind of slightly drifted away from um, from the Egyptology and, and the, the kind of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge. And I, I get to focus on that more. So I'm I'm really conscious of that um and and very happy now doing doing what i do it's 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 great it's not my whole life i i i it doesn't take over my life i still like <laughs> i still like <laughs> guitars and uh, i still get to watch <laughs> arsenal occasionally and i like gardening uh, but you know it's a it's a great thing to do as a as a day job yeah yeah so in contrast what would be some of the uh, less favorable um sides of the uh, career um well i suppose most obviously um the heat uh, sorry <laughs> the heat the, the heat yeah <laughs> um uh, well i was going to i was going to say most obviously the job insecurity um, okay. i mean i i was i was very lucky because um i was in the right place at the right time to take a junior ad- administrative job um and once i got my foot in that particular door the opportunities came along and I, I, I am a kind of believer that you make your own luck to a certain extent. And I like to think that I took the opportunities that came along, but I'm sure also that I was in the right place at the right time uh, to, to get that job. Um, but, but having said that, you know, it, again, I don't, I don't mean to cast aspersions on, on the ES, but it, it's not a, it's not a wealthy sort of FTSE 100 index company. You know, it's a, it's a small charity that, even though it's been going for more than a hundred years has always uh, struggled for money and, and always endeavored to put all its money into its excavations and its field work, its Egyptology, not into staff salaries. So, you know, it's not a very well-paid thing to do. And, um, and now that I'm freelance, um, I, I've survived as a freelancer for almost four years now, but it's a precarious uh, way of living. And um, I have to be constantly on the hunt for, uh, the next piece of work and I'm constantly aware as well that if if one day the tv companies decide that um my face is too fat and wrinkled now or uh, <laughs> you know the, the the book my you know my if my next book doesn't sell at all um before I manage to get another one commissioned then you know then there won't be any more contracts coming my way and um I will have to go and do something else so so you know I'm sure I'm sure that lots of people in lots of different jobs would say the same thing that you know that you don't you know you don't become a millionaire instantly and you mm. know ne- never quite you never quite know if you're in a career for life or not but I, I think Egyptology is definitely that's why I say you know you've got to go into it for for the passion um 
we, we actually like to like to talk a, a, just a little bit about um, sort of salary expectations. And we've done a bit of research and we'll just give you an average figure. And if that sort of sits right with you, let us know. So yeah. for sort of historians, uh, e- Egyptologist kind of world, um, sort of uh, maybe 22 up to maybe 32 is kind of the average. Um, I think it depends, again, it depends on what you, what you're doing. If, if you're thinking about entering um, uh, the the world if, uh, the, of Egyptology, you know, so a sort of entry level job, then certainly that's right. Um, and I, I, when I, when I, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but when I started at the ES, my central London salary was sixteen and a half thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you could add on a few grand i suppose for inflation these days but still uh you know even with london waiting it was it was it was low um having said that you know i mean the the the, there are there are roles in egyptology for example you know there is a professor of egyptology at the university of oxford um there is a keeper of the egyptian department at the british museum um, those are senior, very responsible roles, you know, for uh, experienced uh, academic in the ca- in the case of the uh, Oxford job, um, academic come sort of administrator come diplomat in the case of the British Museum role, <laughs> and, and those will be um, those will be rewarded much better. I, d- I genuinely couldn't tell you how much. Yeah. How much those people earn but whatever of course, they you, get paid they have the coolest job titles ever yeah that's right yeah that's right um but of course you don't you know very 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 few people ever get to that point yeah, um yeah. and and you only get to those roles after years and years and years um and for what i do uh, for for what it's worth as i say i mean i'm i'm freelance so it's a bit more difficult to uh to to say exactly how much I yeah, earn no, because it, you know because I'm not on a salary but I I don't I don't meet the bottom end of your range yeah a lot of the time um so I uh, also quite like to ask uh, what is something that's not in the job description that you've had to deal with over the years um do you mean um it could be something to do with actually being an Egyptologist uh, being on a dig or anything really i sp- well i suppose in, in my in my particular experience um as i mentioned i became the director of the egypt exploration society in um uh 2012 i started and i left uh after just just shy of five years later um and that role was uh the role of, of a ceo of a charity um and that meant um doing a lot of staff management a lot of administration a lot of finance management um you know a lot of organizing of things a lot of strategic um strategic type stuff you know what should charity be doing you know what's the charity's aims for the next five years how do we invest our money how do we generate income you know none of none of those things are things that i trained to do when i was at university you know th- those are all things that i learned on the job um so you know and i'm very grateful for the experience of of uh, of having done those things because i feel you know a few years later having made all sorts of mistakes and um you know blunders and things over the years i feel as though i learned a huge amount and if you know you know actually I, if i were to go back to a salaried job i would be more likely to go now you know, my skills as a sort of potential employee are in charity management, if you like. Um, and I do deal, still do a little bit of that on the side, actually. Uh, but so th- those are, you know, th- th- those are things that I I had to deal with in my career as a, um, you know, Egyptologist in inverted commas. But all the things we've talked about, you know, reading hieroglyphs or working with objects or reading texts or doing research or uh, all those things sort of went out of the window, to be honest, uh, <laughs> during, during those years, even though I was in, a, you know, a sort of high profile Egyptologist's role. So how does somebody uh, progress within the industry? You know, you, like we said, you've written books, you've done TV, you, know, you, you do a lot with the media, you, you essentially ran a small charity. How does somebody get in there and then work their way up? 
that's a good question. I mean, um, uh, as I mentioned, there are. It, it is principally an academic field when it comes to earning a living. The 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 lion's share of the jobs are are academic, um, whether they are university based roles or um, museum based roles. Um, the thing, you know, the, uh, positions like the one I had at the ES in in charity management are are much rarer. Um, so, in terms of in terms of how you get on the ladder, you academic qualifications are essential. Um, most of those um, museum and university jobs these days will not even look at applications unless you have a PhD in hand. Wow. So, before you've done anything, you you know you you need to have you at least need to be well on the way to getting a PhD. Um, there are very few opportunities otherwise. And, and I, and it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, when, when you think that um, so much of the work that you might actually end up doing is, is not necessarily anything to do with academic research. Um, the investment that you need to make in getting a PhD uh, just to get to the point of being able to make a job application is, uh, you know, is something that people have to think very hard about. I, and I wish this, this wasn't the system. I mean, I think, I think um, PhDs are required partly, partly because, you know, you, you acquire skills which will be useful and relevant in the, in the job you might be applying for, but they're also just a way of, of, you know, of, of whittling down applications, if you see what I mean, um, because there are so many, people who who have qualifications if if the british museum you know offered a an opportunity for a curator in the egyptian department um i imagine that they would probably get two or three hundred applications from people with phds around wow. the world so if the, if they were to say look you know you don't have to have a phd maybe only a, a master's degree would be would be okay or an undergraduate degree you know you can multiply that number by goodness knows how many so it's um yeah, it's a. I, I don't think this is a good situation myself. Um, uh, but it, but it, it's a reality, and it, it, it is uh, something that people would have to consider if they, you know, if, they, if they're really serious. Uh, you know, you, you, you do have to have the expectation that you will be at least on your way, as I say, to getting a PhD. Um, it, it's also true that you, it, it really, really helps to have made yourself known already um so you know if 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 you've already got yourself a little bit of a reputation because you wrote a really great article or you've done a couple of seasons on a project and you've proved yourself to be very capable but also a very likable person you know these things help to um i mean frankly it's just so competitive is is that one of the reasons you did a um a research uh, masters to get more publications out there Ah, that's a good question. Such a I mean, I, I did a talk masters and didn't uh, put out maybe one publication. And um, obviously, yeah. reasons, you you do a lot more publications. And I wasn't sure would would that help. Do you think that would help I, in today's? You know, I I honestly can't remember why I chose. I think I think it's it was simpler than that. It was it was the case that in Birmingham, where I was, the the MA the taught masters. Um, replicated a lot of the things that uh undergraduate students would or would already have covered yeah so in birmingham an, an ma in egyptology was at least partly for people who'd done no egyptology before at all whereas the way i'd done it i'd already done uh you know a module in language a bit of uh, art and archaeology a bit of religion so the research masters that i did um, it involved two taught courses, more language and more religion, and they might well have been the only things the university had to offer that I hadn't already taken. Okay. Um, the other thing I think was that I already, that by the point I was applying for my master's, I already had it in mind that I might not do an MPhil, but upgrade my MPhil to a PhD and just go straight ahead and do a BA and then a PhD. Yeah. Um, it's only because of that tutor saying to me, no, 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 get, you know, finish your master's and go away for a year that I, I decided to take the master's as it were. Um, 
but I didn't, I, you know, actually I, I didn't publish anything as a result of my masters and I've only published uh, really two or three things that have sort of arisen as a result of my research. And I just put my PhD thesis itself. I made it available via ac academia freely online. I didn't, I didn't take the trouble to work it up for publication as a book or anything like that. Um, I was sick of it by then, to be honest. <laughs> um, if somebody was to come along to you and say, I'm going to give you an unlimited budget, put a team together, go to Egypt, <laughs> what would you be going to look for? There must be something on your list, something we don't really know or understand about. What would it be? <laughs> well, um, notwithstanding the enormous caveat that I'd be quite hesitant to take on a field project as director. I've never done this. I've, ne I've never been a field director um it's a huge responsibility and you need to you need to get involved with all kinds of things like uh fundraising but having said that if if that wasn't a, an object if i had all the money in the world and all the permissions um my lost tombs book um it essentially is a um, is a is a kind of survey of spectacular discoveries waiting to be made so I would either go to the North Saqqara Plateau, just a little way north of the Steppe Pyramid to excavate what must be two very large tombs of the early Old Kingdom, one or the other of which could be the tomb of Imhotep. I suspect they probably aren't, but in any case, there's certainly something very big and spectacular to find there, which has never been excavated before. By the way, we know they're there from um, geophysical investigations. That uh, either that, or I would, I'd like to, I'd like to see what more of ancient Alexandria there might be to see on land and off the coastline underwater in the Mediterranean. Um, which it hasn't been possible to see so far that would need mega bucks and even then throwing mega bucks at it might not get us very far but we know relatively little about ancient alexandria because it's either under the ocean or under the city um and the tombs of alexander the great and cleopatra were both there at one point um and i'd love to know if there's anything of them left to find well, if anyone's listening to this and wants to fund that trip, I will bring my spade. <laughs> I, can, I can certainly I'll be happy to put together a budget uh, as, long as, <laughs> as long as the understanding is that um, uh, sort of a million pounds is the absolute minimum. <laughs> what, what do you think will be the next sort of key discovery in furthering our understanding of, of ancient Egypt? Obviously, we had the Rosetta Stone, which unlocked hieroglyphics, but what's something we're looking for that would really boost our knowledge? Well, um, on on that, um, I mentioned the Kingdom of Kush, which took over Egypt in the 25th dynasty, um, which was a very powerful kingdom, you know, next door to the Egyptians, uh, which is relatively little known. Um, they wrote in hieroglyphs um, for, for, for part of their history, uh, I mentioned they'd sort of taken on the trappings of Egyptian culture, um, but we are fairly sure, well, we're clear that they had their own language. Uh, so they were using the Egyptian script um, and language, but in some cases, you know, but, but we can see that they had their own uh, language too. And after a while, they started using their own script, which we call Meroitic, after the city of Meroe, which became the capital of Kush in its last phase. That script has never been deciphered. So if we were to find a kind of Rosetta Stone for Meroitic, um, which might, for example, have hieroglyphic Egyptian uh, Meroitic, um, and it would be very helpful if it had, it had uh, ancient Greek on it as well, um, <laughs> then that would potentially be the key. Um, a bilingual or trilingual inscription uh, like the Rosetta Stone would potentially be the key to deciphering that language. Um, that, that would be massive. Uh, for for our understanding of Kush, um, I mean the other thing that 
I, I've talked about a lot and get asked about a lot is, um, you know, whose tomb might be out there. I mentioned Imhotep, Alexander the Great, Cleopatra. Yeah. Another one which is possibly out there is Nefertiti. Um, if if her tomb has yet to be found, and if it's intact, then that would be uh, that really would be sensational. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it might actually not tell us as much as a trilingual ins inscription helping us to decipher Meroitic, but it would get more headlines. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Um, would you still go into the industry knowing what you know now? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I was very naive when I, um, <laughs> when I, when I sort of staggered into it. Yeah, I would. Um, if only because I say, I say that if only because, um, it's worked out fine, you know, no, re no regrets. I'm a firm believer in, in that as a kind of, um, way of looking at life. Um, but also I have always um taking the approach that i will do this job um f only for as long as i enjoy it and um and f fully in the expectation that my luck might run out at some point um but at that point i'll go and do something else i enjoy or i'll you know throw my heart and soul into doing something else i enjoy so yeah, maybe that's a, not quite an answer to your question but I, i'm sort of hoping that might be no, that's, that's a useful great, kind you. of way of looking at it. I think. I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, um, if Egypt, if you enjoy doing Egyptology and you fancy trying it, don't think to yourself, um, you know, what is the 50-year career path that I might take now, and how do I, how do I get to year 50 um, without making any mistakes? You know, no deviations, that sort of thing. Just think to yourself, you know, if this looks like something that's going to be good, um, what might I do next? And what, you know, what do I see myself doing in a year or three years or five years? That was the, that was the sort of furthest ahead I ever thought. And that served me quite well. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, you know, and I say this, uh, um, you you may be surprised to know that I'm not quite a retirement age yet, and I I don't know if I will I will retire as an Egyptologist or you know as a rock star footballer or gardener. I, you know I, I don't know. Um, Never give up hope. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah, my real career hasn't started. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. I've that had an absolute incredible. history sort of geek fest, and I've I've loved it. <laughs> it's a um, where can people find you on uh, uh, social media and your work? Um, so uh, my website is chrisnorton.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you search for at Chris Norton or one word, um, you should find me on uh, in any of those places. Uh, do you. come say hi. And yeah, we will uh, keep a lookout for that new book. Oh yeah, please do. Yeah, I'm, if I yeah if I may, Egyptologists' Notebooks: uh, a, a pictorial history of Egyptology uh, out on the first of October sounds great well Again, thank you so thank much you so for coming much, on no problem thanks for the invite cheers guys cheers Chris. bye 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 bye